You're listening to the Blue Angel Phantoms podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Notoff, and I interview former Blue Angel pilots and crew. On this episode of the podcast, I interview former Blue Angels leader, Boss George Dom from the 1997 and 1998 airshow seasons. Boss Dom and I talk about a variety of different subjects, including the current COVID-19 crisis affecting the globe and the effect that it's having on the 2020 airshow season. We also discuss Boss Dom's rise in the Navy and what made him decide to apply for leader of the Blue Angels. Later on in the podcast, Boss Dom talks about some of his favorite maneuvers, including the diamond landing that the 1998 team brought back into rotation. He also shares a funny story about a wasp getting inside a cockpit and some funny flyovers that happened during his time. So if you like the Blue Angels and you like Blue Angel history, then please join me in welcoming Boss George Dom to the podcast. All right, Boss Dom, thanks so much for joining us here on the Blue Angel Phantoms podcast. I know it's hectic times, and uh, you're a busy man, so I really appreciate you making time, and I know I had the great privilege of seeing you fly a few air shows in your day, including at Salinas and at Fleet Week in San Francisco, so huge honor. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Ryan, thanks for the invitation. Uh, You know, I've enjoyed uh, looking at some of your video interviews and podcasts uh, with other former Blues, so I'm really glad to be with you today. Well, great. Thanks. So, you know, unfortunately, the elephant in the room, we're recording this March of 2020, and it's kind of hard to have a discussion without at least bringing it up. And it's not going to be the focus of this conversation. I actually want it to serve as a distraction, but COVID-19 is really dominating the headlines. And uh, quite frankly, it's had an impact on a lot of people. And I know we both uh, have our good and well wishes for people that are dealing with the economic and health impacts of that. But it's also had some impacts in our friends in the airshow industry, uh, including the Blue Angels, who've had to cancel a good part of the first half of their season and maybe more. So I really wanted to get your perspective and insights on what, um, how has the team dealt and what have they dealt with in, in previous periods? And uh, what do you think that the current team is really focused on during this down period? Yeah, I, you know, back uh, during nine 11 and then uh, during the sequester time, the teams had to sort of take a sabbatical, if you will, which I, can be really frustrating, and I'm sure it's the same for this uh, 2020 team because, you know, they worked really hard during winter training, probably the most intense flying that uh, you can do uh, in order order to uh, become a well-oiled machine with great precision, and then to have the first couple months of the air shows canceled um, is a huge disappointment. Um, I don't know what restrictions they're under right now. Um you know, um, and, but I'm hoping that they're able to continue to fly uh, every day and practice and so forth in order to stay sharp so that when the air show uh, spigot is turned back on, they're able to hit the road and show the American public what it's all about. Yeah, hopefully. And I hope they get back in the air real soon. Um, And before we really transition to talking more about your career and your time on the Blue Angels, you have any advice for you know, look, it's a lot of uncertain times. You seem to be a pretty even kill guy. What, what's your advice for, for, for folks in this very uncertain time period? Yeah, well, uh, it's certainly quite a time as everybody agrees. We just don't know how this is all going to go and whether it's a shorter term or longer term impact and the health and safety of so many people, uh, it's going to end up being throughout the country. But I think, you know, what I try to do is just stay in touch with what can I control and what can I control? And I try not to worry about those things that I just can't do anything about and just try to focus on the things that I do have control over and um, and hopefully everything goes well. Well, I think that's pretty sound advice. Uh, why don't we transition? Uh, start talking about you. You, uh, Your father was in the Navy and you grew up in, in Pennsylvania. I'd have to assume that uh, that had to serve as quite the influence for you uh, pursuing your own Navy career. Yeah, I grew up outside of Pittsburgh in Western PA, pretty far from the ocean. But my father uh, served in World War II. He, was a, uh, he commanded an amphibious ship uh, both in the Pacific uh, at amphibious landings in Africa and Italy, and then later uh, went out to the, uh, I'm sorry, he was in the Mediterranean for that, and then he went out to the Pacific uh, and was involved in some of the amphibious landings out in the Pacific. And so uh, as I was growing up, he didn't talk a lot about uh, his wartime experience like many of his generation, but I knew it was something that he looked to uh, with deep satisfaction and a sense of pride. And uh, 
Um, occasionally, he would indicate that he was interested in one of, I have two older brothers uh, wanting one of us to at least have a military experience, uh, although he didn't really push it. But um, we were growing up during Vietnam where there was just so much contentiousness and, uh, you know, the, the military wasn't necessarily uh, looked in a favorable light. Um, but um, anyway, my two brothers uh, elected not to participate in the military and it came down to me and I knew how much it meant to him. So uh, I probably made one of the best decisions of my life uh, other than um, uh, proposing to my wife. And that was to uh, sign up for an ROTC scholarship and uh, off I went. And where did you go to school? So I went to school at uh, Duke University in uh, Durham, North Carolina. And uh, I assume through that ROTC program, you eventually did enter, formally enter into the Navy? or Yeah, that's right. So uh, I was fortunate enough to get selected for a scholarship because uh, we couldn't have afforded uh, Duke otherwise um, and uh, participated in the ROTC program. And then when I graduated, uh, was given orders to go off to flight school. And uh, that started my career. And did you got orders to go to flight school? Was that something that you had pursued to, you know, or tried to manipulate to get into flight school? Or is that just what you were assigned? You know, I um, wasn't one of these folks that uh, grew up, uh, had any flight experience at all, uh, nor did I have any particular fascination with wanting to be a pilot. But in the summertime during ROTC, you spend six weeks on active duty and between my sophomore and junior year, I got a chance to do uh, a couple weeks in Texas and got some flights in a T-34 and a TA-4 Skyhawk uh, tactical jet. And at that point, I said, you know, I looked around at my friends that were trying to get into graduate school or interview for jobs. And I said, you know, I think I'll just continue on here and uh, see what this flying is all about. So, so you got your, uh, I assume flight school went well. Did you take well to it? I've heard talk to others that said initially, yeah, flight school was actually kind of rough and it, it grew on them, but uh, was it natural for you? No, not at all. I'm not a, you know, I have some, some athletic ability, but I wasn't uh, nearly as a natural pilot as some of the other guys in my class. So I had to work pretty hard uh, throughout in order uh, to get through. Um, so, so you eventually got your wings of gold. Where, where were you eventually deployed for your first deployment? Yeah. So, yeah, I got my got my wings, went out to uh, NAS Lemoore, California for training in the A7E Corsair II. Uh, and then my first deployment was on the USS Constellation out to the uh, Western Pacific and Indian Ocean. And uh, many, many naval aviators always reference how hard it is to land on a carrier. Is that true? And do you recall kind of your experience learning to land on a carrier? And is it as frightening as people say? Well, there's some things in life uh, a naval aviator never forgets. And one of them, of course, is your first carrier landing and not just your first uh, first landing, but your first night landing. And um, yeah, it's, a, it's an amazing experience. Uh, but just like everything else we do in, in Navy uh, training, uh, we do a lot of preparation for it so that by the time you get out there and you see the back end of the ship for the first time, uh, you're well-schooled in your procedures and so forth, and you just get down to business uh, and get aboard. Um, but I think maybe your listeners may find it interesting that uh, when you're learning to land aboard the carrier, you're, the first time you do it, uh, you're by yourself. Uh, there's nobody in your back seat to uh, to take over if you have problems. Uh, you are alone in the airplane, even though it's a trainer, a uh, two-seater, but you are by yourself. And um, there may be some pros and cons to that approach, but I'll tell you that when you know the first time you're going to be out there day and night is you're by yourself, it really, <laughs> it really causes you to pay attention and focus uh, during ground school and in the the other uh, flight training. Great. And so I assume this initial deployment um, post-Vietnam, was it not a combat deployment or was it? Uh, those were what we used to call the those good old Cold War days where we were, it was us 
versus the Soviets. And uh, so no, uh, didn't see combat. Um, although on my second tour, we did spend a, a significant amount of time in the Indian Ocean during the Iranian hostage crisis, uh, being uh, ready to go uh, to execute whatever uh, the National Command Authority decided they needed us to do. And did you remain an A-7 pilot for that second tour as well? I did, yeah. So I made two deployments uh, in my first squadron uh, in the A-7. Uh, I came back to shore duty and was teaching uh, carrier landings as well as other phases in the A-7 training program. And, and then I got a call one day that, hey, we're standing up uh, some new squadrons with this new airplane, the F-18, and they were looking for somebody who was a a training called uh, LSO, somebody uh, who helps uh, train and uh, stands back at the back end of the ship at night whenever you're not, uh, whenever you're not flying to help uh, the pilots get aboard safely. So uh, that was a, a phone call I won't forget as I got the opportunity to transition to the, the new F-18. Uh, and is that the assignment you had when you decided to apply for the Blue Angels or... Yeah, I, well, I had uh, I had applied uh, for one of the wingman positions as I was leaving my A7 squadron and then uh, applied one more time when I was in the training squadron. But when the orders came along to transition to the F-18, then I headed off to that this new squadron, uh, VFA-131, the Wildcats, uh, and off we went uh, on the Coral Sea. So what, what made you actually want to apply to be boss of the Blues? Um, I, and, and it's interesting because you, you mentioned you'd actually applied to be one of the, the wingmen several, at least a couple times there. I'm assuming uh, your application was not accepted for those? Yeah, it was, you know, it was one of those things. Uh, I, uh, I never really thought about uh, applying for the Blues until one day when I was coming up for orders from uh, sea duty in VA-146 uh, to go to shore duty and was having a conversation with our the CEO of the squadron. And he happened to say, you know, you ought to, have you thought about applying for the Blue Angels? Yeah, I think you'd be pretty good at that. And that was the first time I really thought about it. So uh, anyway, I applied and unfortunately I didn't get selected. Um, but um, I, over time, as my contemporaries uh, were on the team, I, you know, paid attention to what they were up to and how it all worked. And so luckily the timing uh, worked out that uh, after my, I commanded a, a squadron, I was eligible to apply to lead the team and it all worked out. So talk me through the process of applying for the, the boss of the Blue Angels, it's, it's different than, say, applying for a wingman. Is that correct? Yeah. So uh, the Blue Angels and at Top Gun are uh, pretty unique in the Navy uh, in that they have a say in selecting uh, the people that are going to come in behind them. Uh, but for the leader, uh, you couldn't have the inmates picking the warden. So um the uh, admiral at uh, who's the chief of naval air training, who, along with being responsible for all the flight school squadrons, is also responsible for the Blue Angels. He assembles a selection board uh, to pick the leader. I know today. I think uh, once they get down to a finalist, they make the selection the same day. Is that correct? And was that how your process went? Yeah, I was fortunate enough. Yes, that. Uh, it, um, you go through the interview process and then they make a decision. Uh, they deliberate uh, while all the applicants go off to the officer's club for lunch or something. And then when you come back, uh, thankfully, they announce it right away so that uh, if you're not selected, you can get on to other other things that you uh, are looking to do. Did you feel confident uh, when you went through the process or were you just happy to be a part of the, the final uh, group of, of applicants? Uh, what, what were really your feelings during that period? Well, I think it's one thing that uh, everybody who uh, is a finalist for the team, um, you're, you just feel so fortunate to be considered. And you look around the room and you see all the other guys that, have, that are 
in the room and you go, wow, you know, the chances of me getting picked are, you know, who knows, right? So you, you can't go in there expecting to get picked, but you just try to take the opportunity to be able to tell your story and you hope that, um, you know, things work out. And uh, so I was just very lucky to get picked. Do you get orders to Pensacola right away after being selected or is there a down period between selection and when you actually deploy for the team? So I was in still in command of uh, an F-18 squadron, uh, VFA-37. So I went back uh, back to the base and back to Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, finished out that tour. You know, I had my change of command was uh, a couple months later, and then moved over to Pensacola. Uh, followed the team uh, for the last month of the air show season, and then. Uh, we had our change of command right after the end of season air show in November. And Boss Wooldridge, uh, who people might recognize from the documentary Around the World at the Speed of Sound that A and E produced uh, from the team in the early '90s, was your predecessor. Uh, how important was he for your onboarding? And you know, I know because I believe he retired during his actual change of command ceremony, if I recall correctly. So, how involved was he in your your onboarding? He was great. Uh, Greg Wooldridge, uh, call sign Rug Dance. Uh, and I'll let him tell the story someday when you interview him. Um, he was he was terrific and uh, is just you know revered uh, as a as a Blue Angel leader, uh, having led during uh, four different uh, air show seasons, uh, coming back two times for uh, various reasons. And um, so it was great uh, working with him and getting to learn a bit about the. Uh, the demonstration and leading the team uh, from him. Uh, and, and so during that last month of the season, before I joined the team officially took over, um, I got a chance to fly in the backseat of the number seven jet in the formation during a practice demonstration in San Francisco, uh, flew in the slot position with Scott Anderson, and then um, in the lead solo position with Mark Provo. Um, and then when we got back to Pensacola, uh, Rug Dance and I went out and uh, just by ourselves because the wingmen hate uh, having the leader be in the two-seater in the formation. They Because of the, the canopy on the two-seaters, much bigger than the canopy in the single-seaters and causes a little bit of instability uh, during loops and so forth. So Typically, the leader only flies in a single-seater. But we went out by ourselves, and he flew the profiles, uh, and I got a chance to see what it was like, uh, how he did it, and so forth, which was very helpful in, uh, in learning the demo. Yeah, it's actually a really interesting piece of information. I've never, to your point, I've never seen, you know, the the lead pilot in the number seven two-seater jet. So that's uh, great information. Uh, you joined the team and as a leader, obviously the scope of your responsibility is much broader than just being a pilot and, and learning the actual flight demo, if you will. You have to learn uh, operational principles and uh, just how the team, all to get like the maintenance team. Um, is that drinking from a fire hose? having to take on all that? Yeah, you know, I I often liken uh, being the leader of the Blue Angels to what it must have felt like uh, for Bill Russell when he was the player coach of the Celtics back in the early 60s. Because not only do you have all the positional responsibilities of being the commanding officer, but you got to put the flight suit on every day and go out and climb in the jet and lead the team out there in the airspace. And so... Uh, that that made it, um, you know, a, a very challenging assignment, uh, but it was great. And I, I recognized very early that, as all leaders should recognize, no matter where, where you are, is that uh, I, as a leader, could have a good day and my team might have an average day, but the team would never have a great day if I, as a leader, didn't have a great day. And so... From the very beginning, I just worked as hard as I could to try to um, fly uh, as consistently and precisely as I could uh, to bring the formation over center point so that the wingmen could show the world what extraordinary pilots they were. That was my job. So how who trains the boss? I've heard from others that 
typically in addition to your predecessor, obviously I think the wingmen have a big responsibility in training you up despite the fact that you're actually their commanding officer. Yeah. So it's, it's uh, a little bit unique, uh, uh, quite different from how the Thunderbirds do their training where uh, the outgoing pilot will actually fly with the new pilot and, and teach them that particular position. Uh, the Blues uh, historically do it uh, very different. I mean, um, after the change of command in the end-of-season air show in November, uh, the second-year uh, pilots, they're gone, and the first the new pilots join, and together you figure out uh, how you're going to do this. So uh, typically, uh, Blue Angel number two, the right wingman, is the one that starts out training the leader as in Pensacola, you start out not all six together, but two by two by two, and you're fairly far apart and higher altitudes as you just work on the very basics of um, Blue Angel formation flying, uh, which uh, for me, the leader, uh, for the first time, you have to learn how to talk and fly at the same time. Uh, Because in the fleet, we're very, very, uh, we try not to talk on the radios uh, any more than we absolutely have to. But with the Blue Angels, uh, you're flying so close together that if the wingman waited to see the leader move and then they reacted, it we would just it just wouldn't work. We're just too close together. So, as the leader, before you move either the stick or the throttles, you're giving a command of preparation and then a command of execution. So the wingmen know what's coming. And then the idea is that everybody is moving the controls at the same time so that you can literally uh, fly as one. So that took a learning curve for me. And I was really blessed. Uh, Major Pat Cook was uh, right wingman in his second year during my first year. And uh, he was the one that was <laughs> that was burdened with uh, teaching me here how to do this. And while you're getting up to speed and you're in El Centro, did you change your physical preparation at all, or just to fly a demo on a daily basis? Did you have to work out more, or work out differently, or were you already in the physical condition you needed as uh, you know someone from the fleet to just hop in and do what you were doing? Well, I I knew that. Uh, learning to fly the demo was going to be physically demanding. So I showed up in uh, pretty good shape uh, to begin with, but it is, uh, you know, like playing any sport. And so throughout uh, not only winter training, but throughout the season, um, uh, getting regular physical exercise and eating right and all of that is, uh, is really important in order to be in shape and ready to go every day. So then you make it to your first air show, I'm assuming in El Centro. Uh, what were your feelings going into that that uh, first air show? Were you nervous? Were you just ready to go? Do you remember? <laughs> oh, sure. Um, well, um, you know, we're all a little bit nervous for that for that first show. Um, and uh, But the key to uh, Blue Angels training, uh, just like in sports or music or any other highly skilled activity is... Uh, practice and practice and repetition, um, but not just any practice. You know, you hear growing up the old adage that practice makes perfect, but uh, we didn't necessarily believe that. What we believed was practice makes permanent. And so if you're practicing poorly or haphazardly or indifferently, infrequently, then that's the result you're going to get. So what we believed was perfect practice makes perfect. And so we would never just sort of saunter out and climb in the jets and go fly. Even when we were transiting from Pensacola to the next show site, we always marched down, climbed in the jets, went through our procedures and protocols, uh, taxied out, took off in formation and actually flew in formation, you know, even up at 30,000 feet on the uh, jet airways. Now, um, I would let them move out a little bit en route, but we were a demonstration team. And so it was a mindset that we needed to maintain. And so our 
our motto was that we're going to practice till we get it right and then keep practicing till we can't get it wrong. And that is one of the cornerstones to how the blues can fly uh, day after day, week after week, uh, throughout the year, uh, and do it safely. Do you have a favorite show site on on the circuit during the air show season or show sites? Well, of course, you know, there's the uh, major uh, scenic show sites like San Francisco and Seattle, uh, Chicago, um, Cleveland's Lakefront Airport, um, Fort Lauderdale with over a million people on the beach uh, that, you know, are just just spectacular places to fly and places you never forget. But I also thought that, you know, the small air show sites, the community air shows were really uh, very, very uh, cool as well. You know, Salinas, California, uh, the hometown of Sean Tucker, who's probably the the greatest living uh, civilian uh, air show pilot. And I would dare say ranks right up there with uh, Bob Hoover as one of the greatest air show pilots of all time. Uh, and then liberal Kansas. I remember we did a show in tiny uh, liberal Kansas, which was the home of our front man, uh, R.C. Hearn. And um, we just had a great time there going to, you know, the high school football game Friday night and, uh, and so forth. And of course, um, a special weekend for me was getting, taking the team back to my hometown area, uh, Latrobe, Pennsylvania, where the team had been for 15 years and, um, being able to perform in front of, uh, my hometown crowd. Did you have a favorite maneuver when you were the boss? Uh, you obviously had the diamond and the Delta. So, um, what, what, uh, did you look forward to? You know, I, I found all the maneuvers were pretty challenging as we tried to, uh, achieve perfection every day as best we could. Um, uh, I love the double Farvel maneuver. You know, it's just the diamond doing a, a flat pass by the crowd, but number one and number four, we get to flop upside down, uh, which, which I always enjoyed that one. Um, the Diamond 360, where, you know, by the middle to the latter part of the season, when the air was smooth, we were flying literally just within a couple inches of each other. Uh, that was that was memorable. And, of course, the six-plane uh, dynamic uh, fleur-de-lis and delta loop brake cross maneuvers, I, I could go on and on. They were all – each one was really pretty special, and but – each one required just absolute focus in order to get it right. Was there any one maneuver you challenged you more than any other you didn't look forward to? You know, I think if, if you asked the wingman, they would have said that the most challenging maneuver was the line of breast loop. Um, you know, I'm in the middle and I've got uh, two wingmen on either side of me and we are literally side by side. So imagine the pilots are looking 90 degrees uh, towards the center of the formation at me as we're going to do a loop. And um, that's just a, a really challenging maneuver. If your listeners just think about what it'd be like to drive down the highway with five cars lined out next to each other and just going uphill and downhill and turns and so forth. So I think that one was our most challenging. And um, we always took great satisfaction in getting that one right. All right. Well, hey, there's a couple famous clips of your your team on YouTube floating around out there. I want to ask you about them. Uh, the first would be of a diamond landing taking place around 1998 at Miramar. And I guess for context for the listeners, that's a maneuver that more or less went away when the team transitioned from the A4 Skyhawk to the F-18 Hornet, just I think due to the physics of, of the jet. But uh, there's a clip of your team doing it, and it is quite popular and has gone viral. So what's the origin of that landing? Is that something you guys planned on doing? Did it only happen at Miramar? Did it take place throughout the air show season? You know, as a, as a junior officer, I had watched the Blues in the A4 and over time knew most of the pilots um, and always marveled when they would uh, end an air show by landing in the six-plane Delta formation. Um, you know, I even saw one time at a practice show at NAS Lemoore when one of the jets blew a tire and the pilot, I can't remember now which one, I think it was either number five or number six, uh, 
had to deploy his drag chute in order to safely separate from the formation as they were rolling out uh, on the runway. And, uh, in, you know, in the early days of the F-18, when it was new, uh, and all new aircraft designs have growing pains, the Hornet had some problems with its landing gear. There's a, there's a linkage on the gear that was, uh, was having problems that when the landing gear were lowered, one of the wheels wouldn't rotate and lock into place. And so uh, the pilot would have to use the tail hook and the wire cable at the runway, just like at the ship, uh, in order to land safely. Um, so when the team transitioned to the F-18s in, I think, 1986, uh, they took that maneuver, uh, the formation landing, out of the show um, and uh, because of the landing gear problems, but also because the F-18 doesn't have a drag chute. So uh, if you get into problems, it's difficult for the uh, wingman to get out out of the way. Um, but so by the time I got to the team in 1997, uh, the landing gear problems had pretty much been resolved. Um, and each team, particularly when the leader's in his second year, uh, they want to put their own stamp on the demo with some sort of innovation, some sort of change to the to the show. Uh, and that year, uh, Blue Angel number four, Lieutenant Mark Dunleavy and I felt strongly that the diamond formation represents extreme teamwork. You know, four pilots taking off in formation, flying the show as one, and then landing in formation uh, would be an exclamation point. Uh, and so... We contacted the folks up at Naval Air Systems Command, you know, the test pilot folks, and asked them to do a risk analysis of the F-18 landing gear malfunctions. And when they gave their okay, uh, we reached back to some of the A-4 pilots we knew, like uh, Haas Pearson and in the lead and Kurt Watson in the slot. And, of course, I spent a lot of time talking to Gil Rude, uh, and uh, then during our second winter training, uh, Mark and I would fly a third training flight and just the two of us. And we went out to see how it would work first with Mark landing uh, on my wing. And then uh, once we felt that went fine, then landing behind me, you know, because we had experience doing two plane formation landings in the fleet, but it, Typically there, each jet just sort of lines up on its side of the runway. But we were planning to land, of course, much, much closer together. So uh, when that went okay, then Mark started landing uh, in the slot position behind me. And, um, I, you know, I never did it because I was always in the lead. But if you think about it, here he would be behind me and below my airplane. So as we'd come in to land, he, he touches down first. And then these two big exhausts are coming down in front of him, right in front of him, and the noise and all of that. Plus, because he lands first, he has to actually add power when he touches down in order to not um, fall behind me in order to stay in position. So anyway, he was fearless, and uh, we then added uh, Blue Angels 2 and 3, uh, Scott Wedemeyer and Dave Silkey uh, into the wings, and we just uh, worked on it. And so every time that we were at a show site where the winds were favorable, uh, we landed in Diamond, and we were just uh, really proud of being able to put that maneuver uh, back in the demo. Um, and of course, if any of the A4, F4, F11 pilots are listening, we never landed all six jets in formation, uh, but we were satisfied to uh, bring back the, the four jet formation landing. And frankly, I don't believe our two solo pilots, Scott Bear and Doug Verissimo, I don't think they minded being uh, left out of that maneuver. 
And another one that's gone viral is a Sports Center clip uh, from 1998 Chicago Seafair, I believe. And it's the Astros versus the Cubs. And the Blue Angels made quite, uh, I guess, the interruption of the game. And one of the Astro players actually ran off the mound in the middle of the game. Did you guys know that was going on at the time? Was that just you were just flying in your standard demo and that was just a a byproduct? There's two show sites uh, that I recall that have a major league baseball ballpark uh, within the show footprint, within five miles of uh, center point uh, that we're cleared to fly in uh, and use to either do the maneuvers or set up uh, behind or in front of the crowd for the next maneuver. And that's uh, Cleveland and Chicago. And funny how both ballparks are right under the flight path that we use to set up for a maneuver we call the diamond dirty loop where the diamond formation, uh, four of us with the landing gear down and that tail hooks down, uh, we do a loop in formation. Um, so yeah, uh, that day we gave the crowd a pretty good look at uh, four blue F-18s with their landing gear and tail hooks down as we flew overhead the uh, ballpark to set up the maneuver. Um, somebody said the game was protested, I guess by the Astros, but, uh, Thankfully, I don't recall hearing anything about it. <laughs> um, and YouTube wasn't a thing back then. Did you know you were on Sports Center, or did you find that out much later? No, we actually, uh, yeah, we found out uh, later. Uh, but another clip that uh, folks can watch, uh, they may find uh, humorous, is about a surprise flyover that we did of a 49ers game. Um, and that was my first year. Uh, we had gotten to San Francisco and we were getting ready to do a practice demo on Thursday. Uh, the routine is you do a practice on Thursday, a practice on Friday, and then um, fly in front of the big crowds on Saturday and Sunday. And so we were getting ready to practice and uh, Blue Angel number five, um, Lieutenant uh, Commander uh, Ryan Scholl, now Admiral Scholl, uh, said, Hey, boss, you know, the 49ers have a game on Sunday. Uh, and I'm thinking, oh, that'll be great. We can go uh, check out, the, you know, go to the game and have a good time together and so forth. And he said, oh, no, no, it's an afternoon game. I'm thinking that uh, after we get done with the demo down by Fisherman's Wharf, that we fly over the stadium on our way back to Oakland. Um, and so I thought, wow. Um I tell you what, uh, how about you call the FAA and find out if if they'll approve uh, of a flyover. And then if they say it's okay, then call the 49ers. And if they say it's okay, then we'll talk about it on Sunday. And uh, of course, I completely forgot about it because I was busy uh, trying to make sure that I learned the air show uh, site and everything to fly well at San Francisco. And, and I figured there's no way the FAA is going to approve a flyover of a full stadium of people on Sunday and we're calling on Thursday. It just, it just ain't going to happen. So sure enough though, Sunday comes and, um, and doc says to me before the brief, uh, Hey, remember we were going to do a flyover today of the stadium. And I said, well, yeah. What did the FAA say? And he said, boss, those guys at Bay approach, they are great. They said, that at four o'clock when we're done at Fisherman's Wharf, that all the banner tow airplanes will be gone and they'll tell the MetLife blimp to climb to 3,000 feet and we're cleared in. I said, well, great. What did the uh, 49ers say? And he said, boss, they said, bring it on. We want you to rock them in their seats. So we came off, uh, did our final pass by the crowd at Fisherman's Wharf and, um, Came over the Bay Bridge, except instead of rolling the formation out, heading south to go to Oakland, I kept the turn coming to southwest, and um, we did a flyover of the stadium. So if uh, if the listeners, if you want to see what that looked like, um, if you Google uh, the Blue Angels and John Madden, uh, you'll get to see the video clip because uh, it was being televised by Fox Sports and um, Pat Summerall and John Madden. And uh, many of your listeners may know that uh, John Madden has a terrible fear of flying. 
he only would go to games that he broadcast by bus. Uh, so, uh, and he's a pretty excitable guy. So when you watch the videotape, uh, it's pretty humorous. Yeah, that's one I haven't seen. I'm definitely going to check that out. I was talking to uh, a mutual friend of ours and someone that works with the Blue Angels Association, which you're obviously affiliated with, Laura Bogan, yesterday. And she reminded me of a story of a flyover you did over Pensacola in the Delta Formation where you held the smoke on a little bit longer. Uh, do you know what story I'm talking about? Yeah, there were there were a couple flyovers that we did uh, that, that were memorable. Um, you know, we did a flyover of... Uh, St. Louis Cardinals game whenever uh, Mark McGuire hit number 61 to tie Roger Maris. That was sort of an impromptu as well. And uh, and I can also tell you uh, a sort of a, a trick we pulled on the Thunderbirds at Battle Creek. But the, the Pensacola uh, Beach Show uh, flyover that uh, Laura's talking about is, you know, the last maneuver, we come by the crowd, all six airplanes in formation with the smoke on. And then as, uh, as you fly by the crowd, the, as you go down the beach, the crowd gets a little thinner and a little thinner and a little thinner. And I'm, I'm trying to decide when do I want to call for the smoke to be turned off. And I look down the beach and there about a mile or so away is a solitary figure standing there. And as we get a little closer, this guy is, uh, you know, he's, he's got, uh, cut off jeans, no, no shirt, scraggly hair, uh, but he's standing there at attention, uh, giving us a salute. And so uh, I left the smoke on until we got next to him and then turned it off to return his salute. It's pretty cool. That's awesome. Uh, and you mentioned the flyover of Battle Creek and the Thunderbirds. Would love to hear that one. Yeah. So uh, we were doing, uh, my second year, we were doing a show up in... Uh, up at, uh, let me think, it's it's the uh, Traverse City uh, for 4th of July weekend. Um, and um, it just so happened that the Thunderbirds were in Battle Creek, you know, 100 miles or whatever uh, south of us. So we do the show on Saturday, and Saturday night we're all together at a restaurant having dinner, and... Uh, I ask uh, our ops officer, uh, Blue Angel number five, uh, Scott Bear. I said, Yogi, uh, call down to Battle Creek tomorrow and see if you can get the Thunderbird uh, waiver, FAA waiver time extended 30 minutes. You see, we need every show site. We need to get a special waiver from the FAA so that we're allowed to fly faster than 250 knots below 10,000 feet and to be able to fly at low altitude over a congested uh, crowd of people. So he calls down there and gets their waiver time extended. And so we fly the show at uh, Traverse City. Uh, we land, uh, we do a quick debrief just to make sure if there's any issues that we need to immediately talk about, and then we'll do the rest of it when we get home. Uh, we jump into the jets and we launch, and um, the Thunderbirds, they their routine's a little different. They do shows like we do on Saturday and Sunday, but then they stay over Sunday night, and they don't go home to uh, Las Vegas until Monday. So they're standing on the show line at Battle Creek signing autographs, and the crowd looks up. And so here we come, and we do a... Uh, we're coming at them head on with the Delta six planes uh, with the smoke on. Uh, we fly overhead. Uh, we turn around and come back and we do a Delta roll. And then we do a fleur de lis. And then we do a, a flat pass uh, right over the Thunderbird jets uh, and then head back to Pensacola. So uh, there's a, it's a wonderful spirit of uh, comp friendly competition between the two teams. And I think, uh, we really got the best of them that day. Uh, did they ever prank you back during your tenure? You know, it's interesting. They they did a couple flyovers when they were going somewhere for a show, and uh, they happened to be we were we were somewhere in route. Uh, but the cultures of the two teams are quite different, and it's it's a reflection of the two services. And uh, we were given much more latitude by our leadership 
to do things like that spontaneously that uh, unfortunately those guys were never allowed to do. So, yeah, they made a couple flyovers, but uh, nothing like what we did to them in Battle Creek. So we really can't talk about the Blue Angels without really mentioning the maintenance team because uh, you guys have never canceled an air show due to a maintenance issue uh, to date. So uh, can you talk about how important they were to your operation? And uh, did they ever have to go way above and beyond the call of duty during your tenure because of some extraordinary circumstance? You know, I really appreciate you asking that question because... Those folks are truly the unsung heroes. You know, I could spend hours telling you how important each and every one was. And not just the maintenance techs, but all of our uh, enlisted teammates uh, in medical and public affairs, administration, in the events office, supply, and first lieutenant. I mean, we could not have succeeded in our mission without all of them uh, working really hard and uh, and, and making it happen. And, and they, uh, they really inspired me every day. Uh, and I challenged myself uh, to meet the standard that they set for professionalism, teamwork, and dedication, because they were truly the heart and soul of our team. Um, so I can tell you a bunch of stories, uh, you know, changing engines in record time that would make your head spin or repairing a fuel cell leak in the middle of the night uh, so a jet would be ready for the next day's show. Uh, they truly work miracles every day because a lot of people don't realize it, but the Blue Angels fly, uh, currently fly the oldest F-18s in the Navy and Marine Corps. Uh, and that's because, um, you know, the, the young men and women that are flying uh, off of aircraft carriers, amphibious ships, and uh, expeditionary airfields around the world uh, they they need and they deserve to have the the newest aircraft and so forth. So it really is a testimony to the dedication and professionalism of the Blue Angel technicians uh, that they're able to keep those uh, mature aircraft uh, flying, uh, ready to go to fly safely uh, every day. Uh, and that same attitude and dedication was resident in all the other departments on the team. Um, and in fact, you may find it a year or so ago, um, we had a reunion of our 97 and 98 teams, our 20th anniversary in Pensacola at the end of season air show. Um, and about, um, I don't know, roughly 50, uh, of us came together and, uh, I said, okay, you guys have heard enough from me over the years. I want to hear from you. And, uh, at 20 years, the statute of limitations are up. So, um, the front man, R.C. Hearn, uh, called on each person individually, and I asked them uh, to tell a story that they remembered from our time together uh, and to give a shout out to a teammate who wasn't able to attend. And we went for over two hours uh, telling amazing stories about what went on. And of course, a lot of it, I had no idea, <laughs> no idea. Uh, but they work their magic. So they're the best. Yeah, they sure are. And uh, like many, I'm a big Fat Albert fan. And I know they've had to swap out aircraft throughout the year and have temporaries. Did you have a consistent uh, Fat Albert C-130 during your tenure? Were you guys uh, essentially playing uh, swap with uh, different C-130s? Yeah, we were really lucky that we had a C-130 Fat Albert available to us uh, consistently uh, throughout both years. I I just can't imagine how um, the teams here lately where the um, C-130 has had uh, readiness issues and hasn't been available for long stretches of time. And the team has had to figure out literally shipping equipment by trailer truck or whatever they could do. How they did it, my hat is uh, off to them. But uh, um, And not only was uh, Fat Albert a great hit at the air shows, particularly uh, when they flew a demo at twilight with the uh, those jet-assisted takeoff bottles, um, but it was truly crucial uh, to our success. And um, not just the pilots. Uh, on my team, we had Stu Smith and Rob Wonderlick uh, Dwight Neely and Darren Martin, but 
the flight engineers and maintenance techs who I'd love to start naming each one of them, but with my memory, I'll probably leave some out. But getting to the team to the show sites every weekend on time, every time made all the difference. But not only that, but if we had to go get an engine because uh, one of one of the engines got fodded or had another a, a needed a generator or something like that, and it wasn't at that civilian show site, those guys would, you know, whatever it took, their answer was always the same. We can do it. And they made it happen uh, every time. Pretty cool. You're usually flying to and from show sites in your own F-18. Did you ever get to sit in on a Jado takeoff yourself? Yeah, I did. Uh, you know, I've, I thought it was important that I try to experience everything. Uh, so I understood what was going on and what what the team needed. So yeah, I did. I did take a ride in the in Fat Albert, and um, not only was it, of course, amazing to ride in that airplane as it climbs at what appears to be a forty five degree angle, uh, but the crew coordination that was going on in the cockpit among the pilots and the engineers was just really impressive. Uh, and they showed me that, you know, those guys were every bit as uh, precise and professional and pushing, uh, trying to do the very best as those of us in the jets. So I may or may not have heard that uh, previous pilots, demo pilots on the Blue Angels have had the opportunity to get behind the wheel of Fat Albert on, on occasion. Um, you ever get to fly Fat Albert? You know, I did not... Uh, exercise uh, maybe my command prerogative to uh, take the controls of Fat Albert. So I, I missed out on that one. Uh, maybe I may need to go back to do that. Another article I read and you and I discussed it the other day, you guys actually considered going to China for the 1998 season. Is that correct? Yeah, there was some talk about that. Uh, I think the Chinese wanted us to go and uh, fly in their version of the uh, Paris Air Show or the Farnborough Show, which was sort of a trade show, you know, to highlight uh, aircraft and uh, aviation uh, innovations and so forth. And so, God bless them, uh, our folks did a bunch of uh, planning and, uh, you know, cost analysis and all of that of what it would take for us to go over there. And I think the invitation was we were going to go after the end of end of season air show in November. So uh, it wouldn't affect our schedule per se. Um, and so they did all this work and, you know, we answered the mail. Um, but then ultimately I think it got scrubbed and I'm not sure exactly why that was way above my pay grade. Uh, you know, we surmise that there was probably some diplomatic thing between the U.S. and China, and maybe there was some concern about, um, you know, uh, the Chinese getting some, I don't know, by by watching us fly or getting up close to the airplanes, they would there'd be some sort of technology transfer to them. I don't know. But in any event, uh, it didn't happen. During your tenure, did the team at all leave North America for a demo at all? No, uh, we didn't, although my second year, uh, as we were getting the schedule ready for 98, uh, at that time, uh, there were a lot of former Eastern European countries that were, um, you know, being welcomed into NATO. And uh, there wasn't a lot of money in the budgets, you know, to, to do a bunch of stuff. And so, of course, I thought, well, how about uh, welcoming to NATO by having the Blue Angels go over and wave the flag? And uh, that was my great idea. But while I, there was a lot of interest in us doing that, uh, nobody was willing to come up with the money in order to fund uh, our travel over there. So unfortunately, it didn't work out. And the standard tour for a Blue Angel pilot, with the exception of maybe someone that comes in as the narrator, is a two-year period. Uh, by the time you came to the conclusion of your tenure in the Blue Angels, were you ready to, to move on to your next role, or were you sad? Uh, what were your emotions going into your final air show? Yeah, well, that was, yeah, that, <clears throat> that was quite, a, quite a time as that uh, extraordinary tour uh, came to an end and so forth. Uh, it was really difficult uh, to leave that special group of people, of course. Um, but uh, I was fortunate enough uh, at that time to be uh, selected to go command an air wing uh, on an aircraft carrier. And so I couldn't help but 
be eager to uh, get back to the fleet and a green flight suit and fly gray jets. As the team now is in their last year of the Hornet, they're transitioning the Super Hornet. Um, did you ever get to to fly a Super Hornet? And uh, how do you think the new Super Hornet will change the dynamic of the current demo that we're used to today? Unfortunately, I left active duty just as the Super Hornet was coming online. So I missed out on getting a chance to fly that airplane. But, you know, it's been an amazing uh, workhorse for the Navy and, you know, very, very capable. And there's been a lot of work behind the scenes by uh, former Blues who, having recently left the team, have done a lot of work uh, to prepare for the transition. Um, and I think it's going to be pretty cool. The maneuvers, by and large, will be the same with some uh, innovation, but um, the airplane is 30% bigger and louder, uh, which is always something the crowd enjoys as they they just love lots of noise. So I think it's going to be an outstanding uh, air show aircraft that's going to carry the team very well uh, for the foreseeable future. All right. Now I got a hypothetical for you. If you could go back in time and fly in any other era of the Blue Angels, uh, what time period would you choose? Well, that's a tough one. Uh, of course, uh, going all the way back to the beginning with the Hellcat and the Bearcat uh, that your grandfather flew uh, and starting up the team, that that must have been, uh, wow, what a time that must have been uh, going around to air shows and you know, waving the flag for naval aviation as uh, the Navy's competing for uh, scarce budget money after World War II. Uh, and then the F-9, I don't know that much about. Uh, the F-11 was a uh, beautiful airshow aircraft uh, and wonderful stories about that team uh, going over to Paris and flying in the Paris airshow. Um, the F-4, that... Man, that's just raw power, noise, and speed. I mean, uh, it's truly an all-American muscle car uh, that was flown only for a few years in the tumultuous uh, late 60s and uh, early 70s. And uh, I've watched videos of those guys, and I don't know how those guys did it, uh, flying that airplane as they did in formation in Blue Angel demos. Man, my my hat's off to them. And, th- and those guys landed in... Uh, six-plane Delta, and I think I've even seen videos of them landing in six-plane Echelon, which just incredible. Um, and then you got the A-4, uh, the, the Skyhawk, or as we affectionately called the Scooter, with uh, the roll rate on that airplane was just amazing. I mean, it would roll 720 degrees per second. Uh, and with that Delta wing, just a beautiful air show airplane in formation. And, you know, I have a couple hundred hours in the A4 in flight school and then flying it as a, an adversary when I was at Top Gun. And uh, believe me, uh, that little tiny cockpit uh, of the A4, uh, you don't climb in an A4, uh, you strap it on literally. Uh, so I have a hard time uh deciding between the A4 and the F4. But if you made me, if I could only pick one, and because I've already have some experience in the A4, I'd have to go with the F4. All right, good answer. Yeah, I mean, if I had to get in my own time machine, I'd obviously go back and want to see my grandfather flying the demo. But other than that, I think it would be the, I'd love to go see an F4 demo or an A4 demo, which is because I've had a privilege of meeting some of those pilots. It'd be wonderful to see those F4s. though, so big, and I love that movie, Threshold. Um, Yep, yep. All right, so something I didn't give you a prep for in advance here, but uh, I solicited some questions from social media, specifically Instagram on the uh, Blue Angel Phantoms Instagram account. And so Bryce Cantrell Photography would like to know, what is the most memorable experience of your Blue Angel career? If I had to guess from our conversation so far, maybe it was flying in front of your hometown crowd, but I'll I'll let you answer. Yeah, that was really special uh, going back home and flying in front of the uh, my high school buddies and uh, so forth. Uh, that, w- that was pretty cool. And uh, I remember uh, when we did the takeoff loop uh, there at La Trobe, uh, as we're on our back, uh, I look up and uh, to pick up the opposite horizon. And there 
in a farmer's field, uh, somebody had cut into the, uh, the wheat or whatever they were growing there, uh, welcome blue angels. So that, that was pretty cool, but there were just so many wonderful memories. Uh, in fact, uh, on a personal note, I'll, I'd like to tell one story. Um, we were doing a show at Fallon, Nevada, and for those pilots that are listening, you can imagine a hot summer day at uh, a high elevation there in Nevada. Uh, that's a real uh, challenging uh, show site. And um, back in the 80s, uh, um, Mick uh, McTitian, one of the C-130 pilots, uh, had initiated a tradition that I hope the Blue Angels are still doing today, and that is on Fridays uh, after the practice, the team meets with uh, Make-A-Wish children and their fa- and their parents, which is a very powerful experience. And um, on this day in Fallon, uh, we were meeting with the Make-A-Wish kids from the area, and uh, this little boy was standing in line, and when he came up to me, he handed me uh, a picture of his sister, and actually she was the Make-A-Wish child, but uh, sadly she had passed away uh, two weekends before, and he asked me if I would fly uh, the show with her picture, um, and it still gives me goosebumps, but uh, the, the weather conditions were really tough, uh, some, the wind and the um, um pressure altitude and so forth made that a really challenging show site, but uh, it was really smooth there in my cockpit. And uh, we had a great show that day. And I think that uh, maybe she had something to do with it. Yeah. Wow. Sad, but uh, great story at the same time. Uh, uh, moving on, Cody White from Instagram wanted to know, did you ever get scared at any point in the demo or did you ever cough, sneeze or have a hiccup while, while in flight? <laughs> That's a great question. I can't say I ever got scared. You're, you are so busy and concentrating so much. Um, we did have, I don't think I ever sneezed. We did have a couple things happen. Uh, uh, Blue Angel number two, my second year, Scott Wedemeyer on my right wing, uh, he cleared the formation um, on, a, on our takeoff loop uh, one day as we were practicing. And in the debrief, you know, I said to him, well, what, what was going on there? And um, he had a, a, a wasp or something in his cockpit that uh, he needed to move out and kill. Uh, but he moved out, killed the uh, wasp, got right back into formation, uh, and we continued. Um, another time, uh, we were doing a delta roll. Uh, I think it was at Niagara Falls. And uh, I took a bird on the canopy um, which, as you might imagine, was uh, a little bit surprising. I mean, it sounded like a shotgun blast going off when it slammed into the canopy, and uh, most of it uh, went down the left side of the airplane. Luckily, uh, you know, didn't bother the engines and so forth. And while I had a, a little bit of visibility issues because there was a big blood spot on my canopy, um, uh, to this day, uh, Dave Silkey, who was on my left wing, uh, buys me a beer whenever we get together because not because I'm particularly, uh, cool, calm and collected, but I just didn't know enough to flinch. And you could imagine if I had flinched, uh, whenever that bird hit the canopy, uh, we could have had some issues. So, um, you know, stuff happens and you just, uh, try to, uh, react as calmly as you can, uh, in order to keep everybody safe. Yeah. Wow. I could imagine that not being a pleasant experience. Uh, got another question here. Uh, there's been some online teasing of the new Fat Albert livery, and it looks to have uh, been given a modern spin, although they haven't shown the full picture of what Fat Albert will look like. Uh, what's your take on that? Uh, are you a traditionalist, or are you looking forward to the new paint job? Yeah, I showed the. I looked at the picture that you sent me of that because that's the first I've heard of that, and uh, of course. Yeah, I'm one of these grumpy old guys now that, uh, you know, our way was the best way. And uh, so, you know, my first inclination is that I prefer the traditional paint scheme, but I also defer to the current team. I mean, it's their show and their team. And if this is what they think is the best, then uh, 
then I'm all for it. Gotcha. So I don't want to take up too much of your time, but uh, is there anything we haven't covered today? Anything else you want to share with us that uh, we might find interesting? Well, I think we have, I think we've covered uh, just about everything. I just, um, I just would like to say that, uh, you know, oftentimes the blues, uh, as people watch them uh, year after year, they just make it look too easy. And uh, people can't quite appreciate all that's going on uh, behind the scenes in order to make that all happen. And so uh, I just can never uh, help but salute uh, all the teammates uh, that I had in my two years who uh, took just great care of me and took care of each other. Uh, And they were the ones that uh, were responsible for our success. Well, this has really been great. I appreciate the time you made today, Boss Tom, and uh, I hope to see you down the line at an air show real soon. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate it. Good to be with you. All right. So that wraps up this episode of the Blue Angel Phantoms podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. Please make sure you are subscribed to the Blue Angel Phantoms YouTube channel and the Blue Angel Phantoms podcast. You can find it on all major podcast platforms. Uh, So until next time, everyone, please do me a favor. Stay safe. I'm thinking about all of you. And I will look forward to publishing another interview real soon. Take care.